So in this sermon series called Open Invitation, we've been looking at the gospel of Luke and taking a journey verse by verse through the story about Jesus that Luke is telling. And today we arrive at this question, who is he? We're going to zero in on a passage that focuses on the identity of Jesus. And if we're paying attention in Luke's gospel, we see this coming because just before this passage, the previous chapter, chapter eight is the calming of the storm. And after Jesus calms that storm, what do we find his disciples saying? Who is this that controls the wind and the waves? And then earlier in chapter nine, Herod is ruminating on all that he's hearing about Jesus and what the disciples are able to do going from village to village. And what does Herod say to himself? Who is this? And today we sort of come to the conclusion, the where this has all been building in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It wasn't that long ago that we saw Jesus inviting his disciples after they were sent out on mission for him and came back telling all the stories of what they had experienced. He invited them, let's go and rest together. And now in this passage, we see Jesus doing something equally as non-public as that because he is seen praying in private with his disciples. And I don't want us to miss the importance of these things. Yes, Jesus says many very public things, very miraculous things. We just saw the feeding of the 5,000. We've seen Jesus preaching and teaching, delivering people from all sorts of afflictions and from demonic possession. But Jesus is fueled by the fact that he goes away and he rests. He goes away and he prays and he invites his followers to do the same. Are we attending to those things in our own lives, those things that maybe aren't labeled as effective or fruitful because they're not done in public for others to see, but our souls need them. We need the rest Jesus invites us into, and we need this time of prayer that Jesus models for us at the beginning of this passage. And it's during this time of prayer that Jesus, for whatever reason, is stirred to ask his followers a couple questions. The first question is simply, who do the crowds say that I am? It seems that knowing the thoughts and the opinions about Jesus from the perspective of the crowds is something that is important or else Jesus would not have asked his disciples to talk about it. I remember back when I was in seminary at George Fox, now called Portland Seminary, and for one semester, I had the privilege of 
learning under Dr. Len Sweet. And if you know Leonard Sweet, he is an extremely accomplished Christian author and speaker. Um, I'm pretty sure last count, he has written somewhere between 50 and 70 books, which I can't even fathom writing a book, let alone 50 to 70 books. And so I got to learn in one of his classes, and one of his key terms, in fact, he has an entire doctoral program based on it, is the idea of semiotics. And this is what he means by semiotics. He calls it being able to discern the signs of the times in which you live so that you can respond accordingly and creatively in ways that will engage those who see and hear. Knowing the signs of the times is not trying to predict some apocalyptic doomsday. Instead, it's understanding what's happening in the world around you so that you can respond accordingly and creatively in ways that people might receive. And with that in mind, I think that this question, who do the crowds say that I am, is not just a question for Jesus 12 in this story, but it's a question that remains for all of us still today, to know the signs of the times around us so that we might be able to respond. So I did some digging. I found some um, research. One thing I found is a 2015 study conducted by Barna, and the question, uh, the the title of the article with the information was simply, what do Americans believe about Jesus? Pretty simple. Again, from 2015. So we're talking like eight-ish years ago. And if you're anything like me, 2015 feels like it was about a thousand years ago or so, somewhere in that realm. So 2015, Americans were asked, what do they know or believe about Jesus? It's also interesting at the same time, Barna did a very similar study in the UK, in England, that I'm going to reference a little bit. So this is a way of asking, who do the crowds say that I am? The first question they asked is simply this. Was Jesus real? Was Jesus a historical person? Did he exist and physically walk around on the earth? And the answers, you may be able to see these, I'm not sure. This is your best hope, because some of these things are pretty small. But the answer, 92% of Americans said Yes, I believe that Jesus was a real historical person, a real person who actually lived and walked around on the earth. Now, if you'll notice there, and this will be a trend, that there is a fall off along generational lines where it starts pretty high with the elders and the boomers and then eventually drifts down to where millennials only agree at an 87% clip. So 92% of Americans would say, yes, Jesus was a real person who really walked around on the earth. The same study in the UK, that number was only 61%. Only about 61%, 6 out of 10 people in the UK would have said, yes, Jesus was a real person who really walked around on the planet. So they followed up with another question. And you you won't be able to see probably the details of these graphs, so I'll explain it. The next question was, is or was Jesus God? Is Jesus divine? Is he uniquely God's son? And does he have divinity? Uh, Only about 56% of people in America would say, yes, Jesus is divine. He is uniquely God's son in that capacity. In the UK, the answer was only 22% yes, that Jesus is believed to be divine and uniquely God's son. And you really can't make out probably the numbers and the letters, but what what you're seeing there is the black represents people who say, yes, Jesus was God, And then the green and the white are either I don't know or he was just a religious leader. And you can see, starting with elders and boomers, 
that black stripe gets smaller and smaller and smaller as you get to younger generations. Like I said, it's the trend. But 56%. So a little over half of people would say, yes, Jesus not only historically existed, but that he was uniquely divine and God. And then they got to the question about Jesus' life. Did he live a sinless existence or did Jesus sin just like any other person who has ever lived? And about half of Americans agree that while Jesus lived on the earth, he sinned just like any average person might have, 52%. So a little over half of our neighbors, a little over half of the crowds that surround us today would say that Jesus was just like you and me and that he committed sins while here in his earthly existence. These are the things that the crowds say about Jesus today. Dave Kinneman summed up the study this way. He says, there really isn't much argument about whether Jesus Christ actually was a historical person, but nearly everything else about his life generates enormous and sometimes rancorous debate. And it's always a good day when you get to use the word rancorous in a sermon. That's just a... that. That's a fun word. Rancorous debate. 92% of people in 2015 said, yes, at least Jesus was a real historical person. I found another study done by Lifeway that was April of 22. So it's not even a year old yet. And the changes from 2015 to 2022 were not great because they found that only about 76% of people say they believe that Jesus actually existed as a real historical person. From 92% to 76% in only seven or so years' time. Interestingly, 84% of those people said that Jesus is an important spiritual figure. So more people think he's important than think he actually truly even existed. These are the things that the crowds are saying about Jesus today. And we need to understand them, to know them, to be able to respond to them. When Jesus asked his own followers in this story, who do the crowds say that I am, what was their response? Well, some people think you're John the Baptist, come back to life, or maybe Elijah, or maybe some other Old Testament prophet who's returned. And we need to understand that these responses communicated by Jesus' disciples, they would actually have been pretty radical for a first century Jewish audience, an audience that for the most part have given up, given up hope that prophets were even speaking anymore, let alone coming back from the dead. So all in all, they actually thought very highly of him, that he would actually be some form of a resurrected John the Baptist or Isaiah or a Jeremiah. These were very... Um, complimentary things to say about Jesus. They held him in high regard. However, as James Stewart puts it, that's not what Jesus was really after. He says Jesus was not content with that recognition. People were saying that he was John, Elijah, Jeremiah, but that meant that he was one in a series. It meant that there were precedents and parallels and that even if he stood first in rank, he was still only the first among his equals. But quite certainly, that is not what the Christ of the New Testament claimed. We may agree with Christ's claim, or we may dissent from it, but as to the fact of the claim itself, there is not the shadow of a doubt. Christ claimed to be something and someone unprecedented, unparalleled, unrivaled, and unique. We shouldn't blame the crowds we live with today for being a little bit off about Jesus, 
these people were potentially walking around with him in the flesh, watching him do this ministry, and still they were kind of confused about who he might be. So maybe we shouldn't be all that surprised that there's some confusion today so many years later. I also find it interesting that in dealing with the identity of Jesus, those who get closest to being accurate the soonest are not the people with the greatest religious knowledge or experience, but are the people who actually spent the most time with him. They're the ones whose eyes are opened first. Because Jesus turns from saying, who do the crowds say that I am? And then he turns to the 12 and he asks them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And and the repetition in the original language, it's really clear. The emphasis is on you. Who do you say that I am? And in many ways, the entire gospel of Luke has been leading up to this question and everything that follows will help clarify it. This is like the moment. Who do you say that I am? Guys, this is where Christian life, the journey with Christ, this is where it begins. And I would argue this is where it must stay centered. Not into deep sets of theological claims, not with collections of doctrinal statements, not piles of do's and don'ts and checklists, not even passionate quests to either assert righteous power or even fight injustice. It has to stay here with this question. Who do we say Jesus is? It starts there. It has to stay there. And in that moment, Peter gives a response. And because the other disciples don't speak, we should assume that this, he's speaking for them as a spokesman. And he simply says, you are God's Messiah. Some translations of the Bible read, Peter saying, you are the Christ of God. Christ is just the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. And both of these words carry with them the idea of being anointed as the Jewish kings of old were anointed. I read this week in the Voice Bible Translation. I really like this one. Peter's answer is, you are God's anointed, the liberating king. I really like that one. That one's, that one's fantastic. You are God's Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Again, this is a watershed moment in Luke's gospel. This is the first time a human character in the story verbalizes the true uniqueness of Jesus. Now, we've been reading since the beginning. We know from the birth story who Jesus is, but this is the first time as the story works itself out that a human being accurately understands and verbalizes who Jesus is. God's Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And guys, it is Really, really impossible to understate, understate or overstate how much is packed into this name, this title that Jesus is given. First of all, understand this. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's, it's very, very common. My name is Pete Fowler. Jesus Christ is not his last name. It is a title. It's actually a royal title to be Messiah in Christ. And there were a lot of expectations in Jesus' world about not only who the Messiah would be, but what the Messiah would do. What would this Messiah, this anointed one, this Christ, what would he do? You may not be aware of this, but there were several people 
who were labeled as messiahs in the Jewish world before and after Jesus. There were other people given that title or thought of in that way. Probably the most famous one is a guy named Judas Maccabeus. I think I've talked about him before, but I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you remember, because you probably don't, and that's okay, because we're going to talk about him again. So Judas Maccabeus, um, his story centers around the time of about the 160s BC, from about 167 to 160 BC. His nickname was The Hammer, which is awesome. Judas the Hammer Maccabeus, that sounds like a WWE wrestler. Jude, I mean, look at this guy. That's the kind of heroic person you want to follow. This is like the first, uh, this is, this is the, the Jewish guy. In that, this is like their um, brave heart, right? This is a guy that they're just going to follow. And why? It's because Judas Maccabeus, he conquered the occupying forces of that day. At the time, it was the Seleucid Greek Empire occupying their territory in Judea, Samaria, Jericho, and Galilee. He cleared it out of all those occupying forces, all the bad guys. And then on top of it, he went to the Jewish temple and he removed all of the instances of these statues of Greek gods and goddesses that had been set inside of it and around it. He cleansed the temple in order to reinstitute proper worship of Yahweh. This is the kind of guy you want to follow. Clears out the land, cleans up the temple. This is the kind of hero people expected in a Messiah. He wasn't the only one. Around 4 BC, right around the time that Herod the Great died, there were three different guys. Their names were Judas, Simon, and Athronjus. They each developed their own following, and each one of them either claimed or was given a messianic title. A couple of them even wore a crown as if they had been established as the new king the new anointed one for the people. They attacked and looted the Roman royal palaces in places like Sephorus and Jericho. They just generally terrorized the Roman military forces. And they were called by some people messiahs, anointed ones who were going to lead God's people back to where they belonged. In Jesus' day, there were some different views about what a messiah would or wouldn't do, but here's the thing. All of them revolved around a deliverance on earth and of the setup of a new earthly kingdom that would be established. And so when Peter and the twelve give this accurate assessment and proclamation of who Jesus is, this is not the conclusion of his identity as Messiah or Christ. I would argue it's actually the midpoint. It's taken them this long to even start to believe it's possible. But the remainder of Luke's gospel will be them figuring out what will it look like for Jesus to wear the label of Messiah. Because, spoiler alert, it's not going to look a lot like Judas Maccabeus. Jesus will be an entirely different kind of Messiah, of an anointed one. Which is why there are two very strange immediate follow-ups when Peter proclaims, you are God's Messiah. The first thing that happens is Jesus, it says, strictly told them, don't tell anyone. And when we read this, we're like, why not? 
What are you ta- Why aren't we telling anyone? You are the Messiah and we're supposed to keep close, keep it close to the vest, keep quiet about it. I don't think it's because Peter was wrong. If Peter had been wrong, first of all, Jesus would have corrected him. Second of all, we would not be gathered in a Christian worship service right here in this place today. So it's not that Peter was wrong. So why then would Jesus say, be careful not to tell anyone about this? What downside could there possibly be that people find out that God's Messiah had arrived? Listen, they have been waiting hundreds of years to hear this news. Why keep it to ourselves? The answer will partly come later in this chapter. When we get to verse 51, it says Jesus is going to resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He knows that he's beginning the journey to the cross. And if people start making announcements and proclamations about a Messiah, he's going to draw all sorts of attention and heat and conflict that he doesn't need. There are still things that need to be accomplished on the way to the cross. Also keep this in mind. The disciples are right about who Jesus is, but they still have a lot to learn about what it means to, for Jesus to be this Messiah. Maybe don't start announcing something until you know the whole story. And then right after he says, don't tell anyone, Jesus finishes in what we read today by telling them the Son of Man is going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. First of all, I love it that right after being proclaimed God's Messiah, how does Jesus refer to himself? The Son of Man. Sort of like this counterbalance. Because he is both. God's Messiah, Son of Man, the suffering servant. And so he calls himself Son of Man, and then he tells them, listen, here's what's on the horizon for me. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. And by who? The elders, the chief priests. Isn't it ironic that the people who are responsible for the suffering and the rejection and the death of Jesus are the people who should have most quickly and most tightly embraced him because they had all the knowledge of the scriptures. They had all the experience worshiping in the temple and they are the ones who completely missed out. That was a check to me this week, a realization that all the well-intentioned religiosity in the world can still result in blind eyes and hardened hearts. The Son of Man will not ride in as a victorious conqueror, but instead he's actually going to suffer and be rejected. Now, it's not in the text, but I picture Peter just on the edge of standing up and being like, hold on, wait a second, dude, you don't understand how the messiah thing works. That's not how this goes. The Messiah is going to like cleanse the land kick out the Romans, reestablish the righteousness of the temple and of God. Listen, buddy, less suffering, more conquering. That's how the Messiah thing goes. I've got notes I can show you. Because again, the expectation is that a Messiah will be this saber-rattling, enemy-destroying leader. It must have been a shock to the disciples what Jesus told them. And did you notice, it's immediately the first thing he tells them. Before they get to spin off into these grand illusions about what it will mean that their rabbi, their teacher will be Messiah, he says, stop and listen. 
I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and ultimately I'm going to die. Which leads me to this conclusion. The victory of Jesus would not arrive through conquering but sacrificing, not because of unbeatable might, but because of unrelenting love. It is the beauty of the cross that will save the world. And the entire rest of Luke's gospel is for the disciples and for us to continue to learn about what that looks like and what it means. So a few things to reflect on in closing before we come to the table together. And these are in your bulletin and the insert if you want to take them home today and think about them a little bit more deeply this week. Here's the first one. Are you neglecting or minimizing your prayer life? Ask God to grow within you a hunger for a deeper connection with him. Secondly, do you know what people in the crowds of your life think about Jesus? And maybe is there someone that you could ask this week, just out of curiosity, who do you think Jesus is? Third, if someone were to ask you who you think Jesus is, how would you answer? It is great to be thinking through that question before somebody springs it on you and you go, and then later on you say, I know what I should have said. Who do you say that he is? And lastly, in this time of silence, ask the Holy Spirit to form your life to better reflect the unselfish sacrifice and the unrelenting love of the way of Jesus, mapped out at the end of today's passage and put on display in the rest of Luke's gospel. I'm going to flip through these one more time and silence my voice for a moment. And my hope and prayer is that there's something here today that will allow you to just let the Spirit speak to your heart during this time of silence. Father, today we're thankful for the opportunity, the privilege of knowing Jesus. We think of Jesus, how you're known in the crowds around us today, and we pray that you would prepare and form our hearts and our minds and our words if we are asked who you are to us, that we would be able 
to give a hopeful, a joyful answer. We ask Jesus in, in this moment and as we study the rest of Luke's gospel, help us to, to understand and Holy Spirit form our hearts, our lives to reflect your character, not as a Messiah, a deliverer, an anointed one who comes storming in in order to do violence to bring his enemies to his knees, but instead one who sacrificially gave himself for his enemies. Jesus, let your unrelenting love shape our lives so that it might flow from us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.